Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. As I mentioned uh, earlier, this is the time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Four times a year we do this. And, uh, you know, some churches tack it on at the end and some churches place it at the very center. You know, we, we choose to, to give this time the significance that I believe it's worthy of. You know, this is a, an opportunity for us as a, as a body of believers, as the body of Christ, to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross, what, what happened through the resurrection. And so uh, I just want to take about 10 minutes or so uh, this morning to kind of set the stage for us before we actually celebrate the Lord's Supper. Colossians chapter 2 is where I want us to start, and uh, we'll move around just a little bit, but Colossians 2 is where we're going to mainly be planted this morning. You know, whenever I was uh, early on in my Christian walk, I, I can remember the first author, Christian author that I ever really began to read was a guy named Max Lucado. I've never been a real big reader. I've never been one who just wanted to find a book in a quiet place. <laughs> you know, I've just never been one like that. It's always been kind of a, uh, I have to be very intentional about, uh, about extra reading and extra study. And, uh, but Max Lucado was one of those first Christian authors that I can ever remember really just, just grabbing hold of and absorbing and diving into most everything that he read. One of his earlier books, he told the story that happened from his earlier days in ministry. Before he was ever an author, before he was ever a uh, radio personality, pastor, he was a missionary, he and his family, to Brazil. And he tells the story of the first funeral that he ever attended there in Brazil. And it was for a woman who was an elderly woman by the name of Dona Nusa. And Dona Nusa had been known in that community for a decision she'd made years and years before. And that decision was to adopt a seven-year-old little girl who had never known her father. Her mother was a prostitute. She lived in poverty. She had absolutely nothing, and her name was Carmelita. Well, Dona Nusa, years before, had chosen to adopt Carmelita as her own, and she took her literally overnight from a place of poverty to a place where she had everything she needed, a place where she had very little relationship in her life to a point to where she had nothing but a relationship that surrounded her. And that little girl's life was changed because of a decision by Dona Nusa to adopt her. Well, the years went by, and Dona Nusa would ultimately pass away. And Lucado was there at the funeral, and he noticed, he made note of the fact that after the service was over, and as everyone began to file out of the building towards the cemetery for the burial, he noticed one sole figure that remained there up towards the front, and he could hear her crying quietly. And as he leaned in to listen, all he could hear in Portuguese was the word obrigada, which translated thank you. Of course, he didn't have to look much further to realize that it was Carmelita, now a grown woman, who was expressing gratitude for the change that came to her life as a result of the sacrifice of one. You know, whenever we look at gratitude, I would be willing to say that just from experience, there are times that we don't express those simple words of thank you nearly enough. And there are reasons for that. You know, whenever you're a parent, or maybe you remember as a child having to be taught to say thank you, if we had a dollar for every time our mom and dad said, what do you say? You know, whenever you get a gift, you thank you, and we never seem to learn that lesson. Sometimes it's because we're prideful. We feel like we deserve better than what we got. Did you ever get those gifts when you were a kid, you know, and you'd get that from that long lost aunt that sent you something that was about five years out of date, and you think, I deserve better than this. Do you ever, you ever get that kind of, maybe that's just me, I don't know, this is the time of confession up here, I guess. You know, there are times we feel like we deserved a little bit better, and what happens is, as adults, at times, we have a real hard time shaking that perspective, and we go through life feeling like we deserve better, like we're missing, some, something is not clicking for us, and things need to be better than they are for us. We deserve a lot better, and we forget the simple fact that we don't deserve even what we have. And so sometimes the failure to be, to be gracious, to be, to be grateful, is because of our own pride. But sometimes it's because we're just too busy. <laughs> you know, we're just too busy to simply say thank you. 
We don't express the gratitude that sometimes comes whenever we stop and pause and reflect and recognize the fact that many times behind a gift is a sacrifice that went there. And so as we look in the book of Colossians chapter 2, what I want us to do this morning, just in the few minutes that I'm going to take, is to really paint a picture of the one who offers the gift of salvation to us and then the nature of that gift as well. And it's in Colossians chapter 2 this morning is where we're going to, where we're going to start. Verse 9 and verse 10 is where we'll begin. And so pick up with me there, this letter that Paul writes to the Colossian believers there in the city of Colossae, verse 9 and verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, for in him, that's a reference to Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. You know, it's an interesting place there where, where Paul lands there before he begins to talk about what Christ did. He begins to emphasize who he is and, and uh, who he is at the very nature. And he mentions there in that verse, in verse 9, if you'll recognize, he makes mention that in Christ specifically dwells all the fullness of deity. And what Paul is asserting there is that Jesus is God. And we don't have time to go into all the background of the book of Colossians, why he would have to say that in the face of heresy that was being proclaimed there in that area. But he was emphasizing and, and making no bones about it that Jesus Christ is God. He's not a, a good man. He is not a moral teacher. He is God himself. In fact, in chapter 1, if you look back just one chapter to verse 15, he even paints more of a picture for us before, before he ever gets to what we have as chapter 2. He says in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't let that, that word firstborn throw you. If you've had ever uh, conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses that come knocking on your door, they love to camp on that verse and try to use it to emphasize the fact, uh, uh, wrongly so, that Jesus is created. Jesus is not created. He is the creator. And in the Greek language, that word that we translate in the English as firstborn does not mean that he literally was born first. It means that he carries all supremacy, all authority, all right and reign. That's what that word firstborn means in the original Greek language. And what Paul is painting there is a picture of Jesus as no, nothing less than God himself. In fact, look at verse 16. He says, for by him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so what Paul does there, he asserts the simple fact that Jesus Christ is God. So let's get this thing straight from the very beginning as to who Jesus is. He's God himself, 100% man, 100% God. And then he begins to focus on what Christ did. And so look back in, a, in Colossians chapter 2 again. Let's jump up to verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You know, Paul decides then to begin to focus on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he mentions a few things that happened as a result of that transaction that took place that day when Jesus died for the sins of the world. First thing he makes mention of there is that he made the dead alive. He even mentions that specifically in verse 13. 
In fact, look at how he words it here. It sounds reminiscent of the book of Ephesians. He says in verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions, he says. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that very thing, that, that we were at one point dead in our transgressions and in our sins. You see, every person without a relationship with Christ spiritually on the inside is dead. And though they may live and breathe on the outside and appreciate the things of creation, inwardly, without Jesus Christ, every one of us is dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Have you ever noticed, you may remember again back when you were a child, have you ever noticed that your mom and dad, did, or the one who raised you, did not have to teach you how to do what was wrong? <laughs> they didn't have to teach you. Now come here, Timmy. Let me show you how to wreck your life. Come here. I want you to get these matches, and I want you to go over there to that table. There, you know, in the living room, Timmy. And I want you to strike those matches. I want you to set that table. No, we'd have to teach them how to do that kind of stuff. We already know how to do what was wrong, don't we? It's almost as though it's ingrained in us. <laughs> and it is. You know, the Bible calls it a sin nature. We don't teach children how to do what's wrong. It comes naturally. We have to mold them and shape them and steer them and teach them how to do what is right and how to do what honors God. That is the course of the whole Christian life is learning not how to do what's wrong, but how to do what's right in a way that honors the Lord. And it's because in our sins, we are dead without Jesus Christ. We are dead spiritually, and Paul makes mention of that. But he also mentions there in verse 13 that at the cross, not only was the dead person made alive through Christ, but he also reminds us that it's there that forgiveness was accomplished. Look at the end of verse 13 again in chapter 2. He says, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Aren't you thankful that the Bible says all of our transgressions through Christ have been forgiven? There's not one of them that when we get to heaven and we stand before God, he's going to say, now listen, we need to come over here and have a little sit down because there are these couple of sins that you did that the cross, yeah, it kind of, you know, put a dent in it, but we still need to talk through how these things are going to be covered. Never will that happen for the believer. I'm not going to get to heaven and God jerk the rug out from under me and have to sit down and talk over some sins that I committed that were maybe of a worse nature than most of the other ones. That I, no, they're all forgiven, every single one of them. And in fact, what Paul does, he even paints a picture. Look at verse 14, what he says. This is a tremendous word picture. He says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Every reader in the book of Colossians and the church there at Colossa would have understood what Paul was saying there. Because 2,000 years ago, it was customary that if you owed a debt to someone, if you had a, something that you had purchased, or for whatever reason you were indebted to another individual, what you would do was you would actually, with your own handwriting, you would write out a certificate of debt so that whenever the dust settled, if there was ever a question, that person could always come back and say, in your own writing, you have... You have agreed to this debt. And at that point, all discussion is off. What Paul says there is that from a spiritual perspective, every single one of us had a certificate of debt written not with a pen, but through our own sin. So in the sight of God who was holy and perfect and just, that certificate of debt was... was, was uh, so effective that it would be sufficient to, to make us guilty in the sight of God. His wrath upon us would be real and would be worthy because of a certificate of debt called sin that every one of us carried. What does Paul say, verse 14? That it's Jesus Christ who has canceled out 
that debt. The Greek word there is the Greek word exalepho, which means having erased as from a chalkboard. <laughs> Boy, that's a picture. You know, imagine that you get a pen and every wall in this place is a whiteboard and you're given as long as it takes to write every sin that you've ever committed on, this, on these walls. For most of us, we could probably start at the bottom, get a ladder, go to the top and cover every wall through the years of life that we've lived of things we've done to fall short of what God desired for us. And yet what it says here in this verse, verse 14, in the picture there is that God chooses through Christ to wipe away every sin of the one who comes to him through Christ. Wipes it away. In fact, Psalm chapter 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So we were dead in our transgressions and sin. However, through Christ, we have the capacity to see those sins absolutely canceled out, washed and wiped away. And the, and the, the, the beauty of it is that once they're forgiven, he removes them as far as the east is from the west from us. I was talking to a guy two weeks ago, and that verse came to mind. And I mentioned there uh, that it's interesting that God chooses to, to, uh, uh, to communicate that as east from west, not north from south. You know, you can measure north to south, right? North Pole, South Pole, you can see exactly how many miles it is. But east to west goes on and on and on and on and on. Infinitely, God removes the sins from the one who comes to him through Christ. Which brings us then to here. And it brings us to today. So Christian, how long perhaps has it been for you since you've chosen to just simply express those simple words, thank you, to God for meeting you where you were, seeing you in the condition of lostness, of separation, of death, and choosing to orchestrate whatever it took to come and to introduce to you the gospel. How long has it been since you simply said thank you for God for getting the, the gospel to me, for leading me to make the decision that has changed everything in my life, to give my life to Christ? You see, it's not automatic. We're not all going to heaven, regardless of what some say on Oprah and all those other kind of shows. We're not all going there. We'll all stand before God, but not everybody's going to stay there. Because there will some, there will be some who've never had that certificate canceled. And even though the work's been done and the price has been paid and the cross is a, is a, is a, is a past experience, the resurrection has occurred and everything has been done, there are many in this world, if not perhaps right here in this building, that have never had the joy and the blessing and the benefit of seeing Jesus' work transferred to their life. And how does that happen? Here's the good news. Not by paying enough money, not by not missing a Sunday in church, not by doing enough good as though we'll know when our good outweighs our bad. The good news is that what he did there gets applied here when we turn from our sin we change our mind about it. We don't try to get good enough, but we step away from it and we step to Christ. And we pray similar to what I did as a little boy. Lord Jesus, come in, forgive me, and take over. You know, the words don't matter nearly as much as the attitude of the heart. And I believe there perhaps are some here this morning that the best decision you could ever make, and the first decision is not how will my marriage get fixed what are we going to do in this particular circumstance? Will the finances ever come around? Are we going to lose the house? Is this going to happen? Is that going to... That's not the first issue for many. The first issue is, what am I going to do with Jesus? 
Is he who he said he is? God himself. Has he paid for my sin? Has he risen from the dead? If you believe in scripture, the absolute truth is that he has. And am I willing to turn from that sin and to surrender my life, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to forgive me and to make me right with God? If, you, if you've never done that, there is no better time than today, right where you sit, to ask him to take over. But if you have, then today, as we take of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate, hopefully from a heart that's authentic, everything that he's done for us. God, we thank you this morning as believers, part of the body of Christ, to be able to come and to celebrate what you've done for us. You are God, Lord Jesus. We, we believe what Scripture says. You proved it when you died for our sins, rose again from the dead. Your word tells us without any shadow of doubt, Lord, that you are exactly who you've claimed to be, that your work on the cross was sufficient, that you are alive today and you're ready to take over the life that's yielded to you by faith. And so I pray this morning for those that have come here searching for something to make meaning of their life, to get rid of the guilt that they feel, to make things right between themselves and you, oh God. I pray that this morning, right where they sit, with a heart that is genuine, they would choose to turn from their sin and to invite Jesus to take over their lives, to forgive them and to be first for them from this day forward. Lord, we know that we can't give you just mere lip service. We know that it's not the words of a prayer that makes us right with you. We know that it's a genuine turn And so I pray today all over this place for those that don't know Christ, that they they would make that decision right where they sit this morning. And for those of us who do know you, we've made that choice, we've come to Christ. Lord, I pray today as we take of this, the Lord's Supper, that it would be with a heart of gratitude, that we would understand that we don't deserve anything you've done for us. But Lord, it's by your grace and your mercy and your love that you choose to move us from death to life. You choose to to not only make us alive, but Lord, you forgive us, you, you set us free, you make us to be in right standing with you, never to hold our sin against us ever again. Lord, you make us people who have a, are, are of great value, complete in Christ, worthy of even the death of your own Son, O oh God. And so we thank you for the change that comes to the life that's yielded to you. Bless now this celebration of what you've done of who you are, and of what you're yet to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.